sent to Rick. I think it's on my daughter's phone. Thank you. This is Rural Roots, and I'm Bonfjörst. Right now, I'm in St. John's Public Library, just across the street from my office at the Leslie Harris Center at Memorial University of Newfoundland. I'm going to keep my voice down a little bit, um, just because I'm hiding here in the bookstacks. In April, the provincial government passed a budget that, among other things, reduced the funding for the public library system. Under that budget, more than half of province's libraries, 54 of them, lost their funding. All of those libraries are in rural and remote communities. The anger is widespread. Virtually every interview I conducted with somebody who lives in the province over the last few weeks inevitably included a discussion about the loss of rural libraries. For example, here is Pam Hall, an artist and a scholar who was my guest in the last episode. I get the idea that, you know, the government is saving a million bucks. Okay, so I'd like to, 54 spaces, like do the math, what's it costing, 20,000 bucks, they're saving 20,000 bucks a space, I don't know, what's, what's the math on that? So what is that? Is that the salary? Is that the heat and light on the building? Is that the internet connection? Like, you know, if it was me in my community, um, I would do what a lot of communities are doing, which is fighting uh, to get the funding back. And um, I think that's a good fight. I think there's a chance, even though I'm not sure that, you know, decision makers are smart enough to understand what they've done. It's pretty obvious that, you know, there is some kind of, you know, dissonance in priorities. You know, I don't often call in to the local call-in shows, but I actually was moved to call in and get on the line because most of the people were kvetching, rightly so, about the loss of access to books and internet facilities and, and um, you know, that. And nobody was really talking about the loss of public space. Um, the loss of what I call the creative, the cultural, and the community commons. The public library, symbolically, you know, metaphorically, and physically, actually, is one of the most perfect examples of what I would call the community commons. And um, we should be putting them in more communities. Now, I get it. The province is broke. If, if, if you've got a public building and a full-time staff person and lots of resources and they're costing you this much and only four people come through the door in the course of a year, yeah, shut it down. I'm up for that. You know, put it in somebody's living room and in the back of a post office, whatever. Um, I don't believe we need to keep institutions alive just because they're institutions. But a lot of the libraries that are being shut down are used wildly and intensely to presume that the internet, um, when most rural communities don't have anywhere to get the internet except the library, uh, can substitute <laughs> for this common, this community common, this public space, um, deeply concerns me. And the, the challenge too is that when we erase public space, we often transform it into private space. And this is a huge challenge. It's once something is privatized, it almost never 
returns to the public domain. And um, knowledge, which is, you know, the library is a knowledge house. But this loss of public space in rural communities, um, you know, how many more public spaces are there in rural communities? And the library is one we know, in most cases, has multiple uses, multiple purposes. You don't need a single religion. <laughs> you know, it's like a center for diverse, you know, community engagement. And I hate the idea um, that we can imagine rural Newfoundland um, without spaces in which those encounters can take place, right? Pam Hall was by no means the only person concerned about the loss of rural libraries. Ivan Emke, another guest from a previous episode and a professor at Grenfell Campus of Memorial University in Cornerbrook, sent me an email that read, Hi, does rural roots need a rant on the closure of rural libraries in Newfoundland? I told him that we probably don't need a rant, but we should certainly talk about rural libraries. A week later, he sent me this piece of tape. I'm here in the office of Louise McGillis, who's a professional librarian, a citizen of Newfoundland and Labrador, a consumer of libraries, a lover of libraries, a visionary for libraries. Let me just start off, Louise. What's the purpose of a library in 2016? The purpose of the library, I think, has changed tremendously. A lot of people thought that libraries, when we um, saw the internet develop um, and electronic resources like electronic journals and electronic books, that libraries wouldn't have any value anymore. So part of it is that you have to remember not everything is on the internet and a lot of it isn't free on the internet. So a lot of uh, material that people use still is in paper and people like to come to libraries and they still use uh, the resources that we have in paper. Um, but in addition to that, libraries have always played a service role uh, in, their, uh, in their work. So libraries help people find information. Um, and even though there's a lot of information on the internet, it's almost harder now to find what you really need. So librarians still play a big role in libraries in helping people get the right information. So that role hasn't diminished at all with the, with the expansion of the internet. The other role is service the, and programming. So libraries do a lot of engagement work. They engage with their communities. Uh, and in particular, in public libraries, they'll partner with all kinds of organizations to do programming in the libraries. So in addition to the, you know, to the traditional kind of programming, you think of a library, sort of story times, uh, uh, book, uh, book clubs, that kind of thing. That's still very, again, still very uh, alive at the, uh, you know, with the Internet. Um, but there's also um, way more engagement with communities. So communities come to the library to host events, that, to talk about, um, you know, tax planning or business development or now it, in our crazy world, anxiety and stress is going through the roof with all levels, teenagers, adults. So libraries are working with uh, health associations to look at providing stress-reducing programming, and some of that programming stays in place in the library. Uh, what other things? New Canadians use library. They don't have uh, books and things. They go to the library, and they're helped to find information and books and services in the communities. So when you think about a library, it's a place where 
a lot is going on to, you know, connect people to literacy, be it, you know, reading, digital literacy or health literacy, which is a growing field for libraries, or to connect them to the other services that are available in their communities. So they do a whole lot. So this recent move of the Newfoundland government to close 54 rural, basically, libraries, you see that as having an effect not just on the straight literacy of the population or whatever, but effect on the communities, those 54 communities themselves. Yes, I think it's a double whammy in that sense. Because if you think of these communities, they're, you know, keep in mind that they've been chronically underfunded for years. So they're not, you know, this isn't the university, the Toronto Public Library, right? These are very, not even the Cornerbrook Public Library or St. John's. These are small places that have very limited resources. But they have resources and they have books that, you know, these people don't have the opportunity to drive a block to Coles or Chapters to even buy something, right? And again, maybe what they want to buy isn't available online and they don't want to read the book online. Oh, and maybe they don't have their computer. Maybe they go to the public library to use their internet access because in some of these communities, uh, access is really sketchy. So that's where they go to get access to the internet, right? So, I mean, they're losing their books, their access to print material, they're losing potentially their access to the outside world, to learning, to communicating with people. And then again, they're losing this pivotal point in the community that can connect them all. And, and I think it's really short-sighted of the government because as these, these, these communities are getting smaller and they want to find ways to make them more viable, right? Well, push all those services that you can use these libraries as hubs, for the communities, but you can also use them as hubs to connect other communities. So if you want to have a training session, right, they say, well, we can't offer all this stuff. Well, maybe offer how we deal with, uh, if a library is offering a service on how do we deal with stress, you can use the technology in the libraries to provide training and services to everyone in those communities. So they're really, in the, in the digital age, they're really not being very creative or thoughtful with how they can use these hubs to enhance communities and keep them. Mm -hmm. vibrant. There seems to be a move to put government services online as well for all the licenses and, um, and everything else. Uh, it would seem that, I'm not sure, but I'm, my, my sense is that libraries, for those people who don't have computers or broadband access or whatever, are the way in which they can get their license renewed and so on and so forth. And by removing them, it basically removes a government presence from a large part of the island. Absolutely. And again, it's, it's, you're hearing the stories over the past couple of weeks of how, how important those internet resources are to those communities, right? To those people who don't have it otherwise. So it, that's very true. And we're hearing that. Mm -hmm. Do librarians and libraries feel underappreciated at the best of times? And are they surprised at the amount of passion that is coming to their defense? I'm not surprised one bit. Mm. I don't think, I think the people, people who say, what do you need libraries for? Those are people that don't go to libraries. <laughs> <laughs> and there are people out there who don't go. But a lot of people. We know who you are. <laughs> we know who you are. Um, but there are a lot of people who go to libraries. And I think the thing is, is that more people are going to libraries as opposed to not going because of the things that are being offered to them. Even my daughter who said, what do you mean they're closing the libraries? She knows students who, after school, they go to the library. To, a lot of kids, believe it or not, go to go to libraries to do homework after school. A lot of young people go to libraries because they're safe havens 
from the t you know dodgy, difficult years that are the mm -hmm. teen years, mm -hmm. right? Those mm -hmm. are safe places for them to go to feel warm, welcome, safe. So they, they offer a lot of things. So I'm not surprised at the stories. Um, I guess what I am surprised is how little uh, those in the government wanting to close them has any real understanding of what they're doing. They should, mm. the education minister should know what libraries do. And the fact that he's so willing to close them indicates that he doesn't. I think he's feeling a little panic now because he's suggesting some will stay open uh, and they can be run by the schools or they'll down. He's basically going to unload them to the communities, which is a whole other, that can't work either. But recognizing now that people want them to be open, um, he's recognized that, but he still uh, is unwilling to provide the funding, which again makes you see that he doesn't understand what they do and what mm -hmm. it takes mm -hmm. to make them run properly. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there are sort of sideways comments that here's a library in a small community. It's open, what, six hours a week? What's the, what's the value of that? And so on. Well, if you're, it's the only place you can get books and you want, I mean, and you strategically, you can do it strategically, right? You could, uh, in six hours a week, you pick the six hours that are, you know, is that ideal? No. And if, again, what we've heard from libraries is that they're only open six hours because they're underfunded and can't be open longer. In fact, they're trying to be open longer, right? That's what they want. Mm -hmm. um, but, but they won't be given the funding to do it. So they're just, they're hanging on to what they can offer even mm -hmm. if it's as much, a little as six hours a week, but people will go to those six hours and get their books and do whatever, right? They'll make arrangements, but it's far from ideal. As you know, New Brunswick came out last week with uh, $900,000 in extra funding to extend, not, not book money or service money, actually money to keep the building open because they believe that having access to and being in a library and the resources and programs it offers will increase literacy rates. And mm -hmm. of course, we know that Newfoundland has the lowest literacy rate. So to both, you know, how closing libraries is not going to help that yeah. problem. Yeah. New Brunswick realizes if you open the libraries more, it might have an impact. Right, right. So they're, they're giving more money to the libraries, not taking it away like we're doing. Do you have a note of optimism at all? Do you, do you, I mean, you almost have to find a way that government can get out of this without losing too much face or whatever but do you um, feel like there's a way forward that I feel a little optimistic because now there's talk of we're not closing we're we're unloading um so I I I am I hopeful I don't know I mean it's we're we're in a terrible situation but you know um these are that's a it's a critical service um there could be ways I mean if the government was to say wow we've read this stuff we see possibilities for using these libraries for other things. Maybe we need to partner better. Like, I think that, I don't think that saying to the people, can we work with you to find a way to make this work with maybe some money, a combination of sensible, you know, sensible trained staff and some volunteer hours. Um, anybody would see that as capitulation on the part of the government. I think they would. I think that not not doing something that is really sensible and meaningful um, is is not going to do the case, do much for their case. People feel. I mean, it's a they're in a hard place. It's a very difficult budget. I totally understand that. But um, 
you can't continually ask the people to nickel and dime their way out of this problem and still provide a lot of money for other things. Are we really in a position where we can have super duper high salaries for some and no libraries for others? Mm -hmm. The equivalent being that if the top two, you know, everybody likes to talk about the sunshine list, right? The top two salaries, just two people, is the equivalent of the library budget that you'd have. Yeah. They, they do also say that they're reinvesting in some of the regional libraries. There's going to be more books available, electronic, and so on and so forth. It's just... Is that simply uh, just a political move to try to rebrand this as um, as a positive thing? I think that, you know, there is a sense that, you know, um, expanding the e-resources mm-hmm. so that more people can use them, I don't think that's a bad thing, right? But that that's one component of what the libraries do, right? Yeah. So you're not, yeah. but basically... They're so excited about that because their sense is that they didn't they didn't really understand the full capacity of the community libraries, right? And they thought, oh, they're you know, as you said, they're hardly open. Why should we have them? Well, they're only hardly open because they're underfunded. Yeah. Um, and again, I think provision of e access to ebooks is really good. I you know, but they're not they're not uh, the you know the answer. They're great for some stuff, but we need a combined model, right, of a print and electronic. And I don't think that just saying, and, and they're going to mail books to people. Right. Right. So they're going to enhance the mail service. Let's, um, home, let's hope we still have home delivery. Right. Or, well, you can't go to your <laughs> library to pick it up. So, right? Right. It's not like they're going to deliver them to the libraries because they're closed, right. right? Right. Oh, so yeah. So where's your super mailbox? Hope it's 30 right. minutes closed because it... <laughs> the library is obviously, are they going to send it to the library and you have to drive a half an hour to get it? Yeah. I don't know, so many questions. Back uh, 15, 20 years ago, a lot of libraries were talking about how tourists, when they were traveling, would use the library as a way to find out what was going on in the community, but also to check in. I mean, I, I get a sense anecdotally from just traveling around that that still happens. Very much. And as a province that's trying to focus on rural tourism, if after a year and a half, people come and they find there's no libraries outside of wherever St. John's <laughs> that's right uh, I don't know is the, I wonder if tourism is aware of has anybody ever have you heard any discussion about the the impact on tourism again I don't think there's an understanding you know it was all it, like you say it's about we're going to have a regional system and, and deliver books well okay that's one thing but again what about the programs and services and one of the services has always been you know uh, good connectivity so I know like in Cornerbrook the Region, the librarian who ran that was doing a marvelous job, of course, until they cut her position right. a few years right. ago. Um, she was working with the tourism group, and they, she would have a, like a setup, you know, when they came in. She would be right, okay, today is uh, the cruise ship day. Get ready. We're going to have a ton of people. So, you know, get your happy faces on. Be prepared to welcome them. They went to the library. Yes, they're going to, they would do it in all these very, like you say, remote areas, but they're not going to be there. Um, so, and again, recognizing that they, they have a role to play in the, the marketing of tourism, which I think we, you know, they have not thought of because they, they haven't made those connections. Yeah. Yeah. The savings seems to be so small compared to the pain it's causing them. <laughs> well, I think the savings is small compared to the kind of the return on the investment, like what yes. you're putting into yeah. it. And yeah. if you put in a bit more, right. I mean, you got to re- you're not going to save the Newfoundland library system just by keeping them open with volunteers or whatever. You have to have 
some kind of a system where they're properly staffed and, you know, is it easy? No, but it's, you're right. It's not, it can be done with a bit more money and you could get a lot out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Louise, thanks very much. Thank you. So both of us remain optimistic. Yeah. Well, you're cautiously optimistic. Cautiously. Yes. Yeah. Take care. See you at the library. Oh, thanks. Goodbye, Ivan. <laughs> Newfoundland and Labrador, sadly, is not the only place that struggles with keeping its rural libraries open. The challenges and the stories vary, but across Canada, different jurisdictions are experimenting with ways to provide good library services to rural populations dispersed across large geographic areas. And geography doesn't get any larger than in Nunavut. The territorial public library system includes 11 branches over 2 million square kilometers. So while I check out a couple of books, you can listen to this next piece of tape from a former Newfoundlander who now runs Nunavut's public libraries. My name is Ron Noling. Uh, I, uh, I'm originally from Newfoundland, but I live in uh, Baker Lake, Nunavut now, where I uh, I'm responsible for uh, the operations of the Territorial Public Library Services. We uh, try to send out uh, books and DVDs, materials that will interest people. Uh, we try to keep uh, strong lines of communication open with each uh, library so that as uh, patrons come in looking for different types of materials, uh, we're aware of it so that we can always respond to community needs. Um, and uh, we try to uh, make sure that we're uh, oh, uh, finding information and providing information which is uh, of interest to local people and relevant to local people. Libraries always have this sort of dilemma of uh, you know kind of uh, sh uh, bringing in information which people like, which is entertaining, uh, but also bringing in uh, information, books, DVDs that are, uh, I guess you would say, uh, uh, uplifting or useful. So we've always got this sort of this pull one way for the trivial but amusing and then the useful and very deep and solid. And uh, it make, can make librarians a bit neurotic trying to resolve those two dilemmas. Newfoundland's library governance uh, is very top-down. Uh, and so the minister appoints the provincial library board. The provincial library board authorizes uh, local community libraries and appoints the, the local library board members. And usually with most public libraries, uh, while the money does in one way or another come from the government, uh, you get a lot more local participation in the library. So you'll have uh, oh, a uh, local library boards appointed by the municipality or elected by local citizens, and that is quite absent in uh, oh, uh, in Newfoundland situation. Uh, library board members are beholden to the provincial board, which is in turn beholden to uh, the minister that provides them with their money. Uh, in Nunavut, the majority of our libraries uh, function through uh, community partnerships. So uh, we provide funding to a, uh, a community group or a hamlet or a, a, a district education authority, which is essentially a community school board. And then they will use that money to uh, run a local public library. Um, oh, uh, so we always make sure that we have 
those community partnerships in places in place. And in in some cases, we actually have governing uh, library boards, uh, but in most of our communities, we don't. Um, and you do see the difference in terms of uh, oh. Uh, the performance of local libraries, depending on how much community participation there is in uh, the actual uh, governance of the uh, the library itself. Uh, so uh, I'm thinking of Pond Inlet, which has a very active and stable public library, and they have a community library board. Um, in uh, Clyde River, the Illisaxevic Society, uh, oh, uh, which is a community-run organization, also runs uh, the community library, which is actually co-located in their in their building, uh, and uh, that's a very active society. They've done a lot of work there in terms of uh, uh, preserving and promoting the uh, Inuktitut language, uh, in terms of also uh, uh, providing uh, 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 homework groups for kids in the afternoons after school. Uh, so it's uh, one of the things that you find with libraries is that often. Uh, in a lot of communities, it's one of the few safe spaces that everyone can go to. So uh, they provide a really important uh, contribution to civil society uh, across the territory. Uh, in Kugluktuk, uh, oh, uh, our, uh, oh, a few years ago, the uh, uh, community library was uh, holding a soup kitchen on Saturdays, and people in the community would come in for a healthy meal. And also for an opportunity to, uh, you know, kind of look at the books, look at the DVDs. And so it was a nice uh, confluence, a nice coming together of uh, resources. But again, that's something that didn't come from my office. That came from the local community in Clyde River. Uh, oh, uh, you know, kind of the work they do there comes from the local community. And that's because they're participating in their library in the same way in a Callowit. Uh, we have a very strong, even though we run that library directly, because we have a very strong Friends of the Library group, uh, most of the programming is actually done by community volunteers. And so we've got a Nuktatut language programming. We've got uh, early childhood education programming. We've got um, a video games group that comes in uh, once or twice a week to uh, play video games, which again... Uh, might seem trivial, it might not seem like it has a lot to do with literacy, but it helps to improve the quality of life of the kids. It gives them a safe place to go. Uh, and uh, for many of them, you know, kind of if they don't have a video game console at home, it's just it's a little bit of fun and it, it makes life better. And that's, that's part of enhancing wellness and quality of life for everyone in the community. So we're always really happy when, when we can do little things like that for our uh, uh, our uh, patrons. In most of our communities, uh, oh, uh, uh, we have uh, community members running the library, and they, they are paid by uh, oh, uh, the local partner organization with uh, fund, the funds that we provide. Um, oh, uh, but again, that comes through the local partner organization. Uh, uh, and most of the time, the, the people who are running these libraries are uh, Oh, uh, local residents, often they won't have much more than a high school education. Uh, and that can be a big challenge um, because often, uh, especially in small, uh, in, uh, in remote, inward communities, you don't have uh, high literacy levels. 
so one of the oh, big challenges for us is to try and find ways to uh, oh, be training the community librarians and making sure they have the professional skills that they need to engage with uh, their patrons. And uh, that is that is challenging. Um, uh, and we want to make sure that a lot of people who have low literacy skills find books intimidating. And uh, so that can be a barrier even for uh, someone working in the library. Um, and so again, we are uh, we make community visits, site visits uh, by our staff. We try to hold regular teleconferences. Uh, we try to keep in touch with them through email. Uh, we're also just in the process of setting up a learning management system uh, where uh, we are uh, developing content, uh, which will help kind of keep the uh, so that the community librarians, if they aren't familiar with part one of their responsibilities or part of their work, they can go to that to uh, oh, uh, upgrade their skills. And eventually over time, we're, we're only establishing the, the basic curriculum right now. Over time, we want to expand this as, you know, kind of our understanding and our vision expands so that, you know, kind of we're not just training the community librarians. Hopefully we're providing uh, oh, training content for patrons as well. But, um, oh, uh, you know, I have uh, professional staff working in my office here. I'm a professional librarian. Uh, we also have a professional librarian working at our largest branch in Iqaluit. But beyond that, uh, yeah, it uh, oh, uh, uh, requires us to uh, make a lot of use of the web, uh, make a lot of, uh, oh, we rely on people's initiative and their interest a lot of the time. And it can feel uh, very much that you're uh, uh, operating uh, Oh, uh, on a wing and a prayer. It's important to be open to those opportunities. Um, again, thinking about Clyde River, uh, because they're co-located in, in this building with the Ellisaxidic Society, which is also a, a social service organization, uh, last week uh, they had a, a counselor's training workshop going on in the library. And at break time, someone brought in snacks, and these were Inuit snacks, so they, so they brought in caribou brain. And people were very excited to have caribou brain. And, and those are the things that help to bring local flavor and, and make a, a branch distinct. And we might laugh at that and, and think it's weird, but it, it means that people are comfortable in that space. And that's really important. I think one of the things that I certainly believe to the core of my soul, um, when I started in libraries, I found that the, the, the public mandate of the public library is incredibly liberating. Uh, public libraries, because of their broad mandate, are able to respond to almost any need or address almost any issue in a community. And because of the way we're connected and we share information, we're able to speak uh, in a relatively well-informed way about those questions. And uh, for me, this this is this is like play. This is this is an incredible opportunity to talk to people and to help people, and that is really what uh, got me into libraries, and what it's what keeps me in public libraries. Um, so I would say that with uh, the internet and with the digital revolution, uh, public libraries have an incredibly vibrant and relevant future, and uh, I'm quite optimistic. But uh, it is uh, disappointing to see uh, uh, short-sighted people uh, trying to close down libraries because they, they, they 
say something uh, simple like, well, it's all on the Internet. And it's about human interaction. That is a real nexus, and that is the important focus of public libraries, bringing people together to share information and you know, kind of and talk about it. I have my library books, and I'm back in my office. You're still listening to Rural Roots' episode about community libraries. So far, we heard about the funding cuts to rural libraries in Newfoundland and Labrador, the changing nature and the importance of community libraries, and the ways one jurisdiction in the north works across massive geography to provide good library services to residents in Nunavut. I wanted to know about other ways we have in Canada to ensure that rural communities have access to library services. Our next, and for now, last stop is in Prince George in northern British Columbia. I spoke with a researcher who studies ways in which rural communities in BC bundle together services in order to create neighborhood learning centers. My name is Laura Reiser, and I'm the research manager for the Rural and Small Town Studies Program at the University of Northern BC in Prince George, British Columbia. We've been doing lots of research in small rural communities in British Columbia for a number of years, and we kept hearing a lot about um, the pressures that local governments and nonprofits were facing to um, uh, operate efficiently and to maintain services in their communities, uh, and also dealing with increased calls for groups to collaborate more. Uh, And so part of that has been with the mandate for groups to engage more in uh, co-location or smart services, uh, these kinds of things. So in terms of the libraries, like in in BC, um, uh, a lot of the libraries, they're municipal libraries or they are, uh, in the case of... um, uh, Vancouver Island or Haida Gwaii, you know, they have a, a regional uh, library system. A lot of them were operating in some very um, aging infrastructure. Uh, and But it, it's funny, the, the initiative to co-locate often wasn't driven by the circumstance of a library in B.C., um, the bigger issue for small communities in B.C. was the potential loss of schools, elementary schools specifically. And so this really prompted um, small communities such as Pouscoopy, Port Clements, uh, and others to try to rally and to find a way that they could um, keep their schools. Um, and so uh, often what would happen was the local government uh, or the regional government in the case of some unincorporated uh, corporated areas uh, would uh, work with local stakeholders and try to find partners that could be part of a co-location initiative. And often because um, libraries, uh, um, you know, certainly coming under the purview of uh, the local government um, and as they wanted to try to streamline and improve some of their own efficiencies, uh, were one of the stakeholders that were often brought in for these co-location or multi-purpose projects. And then often, uh, you know, there would be a school or in some cases, you know, it could have been other stakeholders as well, like different service providers, um, RCMP or, you know, various things, depending on um, the, the mix of the service providers, because of course you want to get good synergies. Uh, but of course, you know, between an elementary school and a public library, there often were good synergies because in the case of some of them, they were able to um, join the school and the municipal library together um, so that uh, they were strengthening their um, catalog system and what they, they had to be able to offer for uh, their community. You know, certainly there had to be attention to uh, discussing ownership 
clauses within these user agreements um, because often uh, the provincial government would still retain um, full uh, ownership or control over these uh, assets. And that was a particular concern for small communities because then if the provincial government down the road would still decide that they might um, want to close that school, what then would happen to the asset? And so there were definitely um, uh, good discussions about giving the local government uh, or the regional government first right to be able to purchase the facility. It was a really a way just to create, um, I guess, a, a learning hub in small communities. Uh, and certainly, uh, libraries have really expanded their functions um, over the years. So not just being a public library, but putting on all kinds of workshops uh, in small communities, whether it be on financial literacy for, you know, um, workers who are engaged in, in industry to talking about wills, I mean, all kinds of things. Uh, and so really working with service providers as well to deliver sort of these quick workshops. Uh, and so uh, basically the whole concept of a neighborhood learning center is to create these hubs um, where you can really strengthen uh, the educational assets in, in your town. Um, I just, I think that the, the libraries are such a good potential partner for these kinds of co-location or multi-purpose facilities because they can dovetail and have relationships with so many different people in the community. So they can work well and have great synergies with schools, but at the same time, they can have wonderful synergies when it comes to service providers and being able to deliver workshops on behalf of different service providers uh, and even provide space for things to take place if there's like an evening workshop, for example. So they are a natural fit for so many different types of co-location initiatives. Um, so, uh, and you know, they really are um, a central focal point. They provide a safe place for so many people to go uh, and to access information. And um, I think, especially in an aging um, environment uh, in some communities, um, for people to be able to go and to explore new knowledge, it really strengthens mental wellness. Uh, and so um, they really do provide a really critical function. And they really provide a historical record of small places, uh, and not just in terms of the history of a place, but everything that has happened, like a history of relationships, um, you know, through all of the different reports um, and things that can be um, placed there, um, different agreements that have happened in certain communities uh, between different stakeholders. And so they really do provide a really good record. Um, so they, yeah, they just, they really are quite instrumental, I think. Thank you for listening to Rural Roots. In this episode, we looked at the importance of rural libraries. In the light of funding cuts to libraries in Newfoundland and Labrador, we explored the ways in which Nunavut and British Columbia provide library services to the rural communities. There are other models we are going to look at in the future. In this episode, you heard from Pam Hall, Ivan Emke, Louise McGillis, Ron Nolling, and Laura Reiser. Rural Roots is produced in collaboration between the Leslie Harris Centre of Regional Policy and Development at Memorial University of Newfoundland, Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation, and Rural Policy Learning Commons Partnership, bringing together rural scholars and policymakers in Canada and abroad. The show is supported through a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada grant.
North Star is the song you can hear at the beginning and the end of this show. The song was composed by Laura Bates and performed by Trent Severn. If you listened to Rural Roots on your campus or community radio, please let us know if you liked the show. If you listened to the podcast version of the show, feel free to encourage your local radio station to get in touch if they're interested in broadcasting the program. The show is available to community and campus radio stations free of charge through the National Campus and Community Radio Association Program Exchange. Thanks for listening and I hope you join us next time. To subscribe to the podcast, visit ruralrootspodcasts.com. That's all one word, rural, R-O-U-T-E-S, podcasts.com. I'm Boyan First, and you just listened to Rural Roots. Stay in touch.